Today's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her then cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. We have all kinds of stories or pictures of honor in our culture. Most recently, I was reminded of one as a U.S. Marine, Major Steve Beck had the heart-wrenching task time after time of letting families know, military families know, of a lost loved one in battle. And he describes the heart-wrenching task that was. And he wouldn't only just go tell the families when they had lost a loved one in battle, but he would actually, he would actually spend time with the families for days, even uh, to the point of helping with the funeral service and getting the process of the funeral in place. And then when that happened, training up the, the Marine Honor Guard that would tend to the fallen comrade's body, the funeral. And and Steve Beck would describe how he would train those, that honor guard, that when they, they left the body or when they came back, that they, would, um, that they would salute their fallen comrade. And it wouldn't just be a, a normal military salute, not what they were taught in, in basic training. But he came up with a slow salute. And he would train them that they would uh, have a three-second raising of the, the hand to the head, and then three seconds hold, and then a three-second drop. He said it would take about nine times as long as a normal salute. But he made the point that it was so important to honor a fallen comrade. That's a picture of honor. I witnessed the other day, um, I witnessed a, someone pick up the tab at a restaurant for a police officer. That's a, that's a picture of honor. When you give eye contact to a homeless person who is begging and asks you for money, when you just stop and give them eye contact and say hello, even if you don't give them money, that's a picture of honor. That's a picture of dignity. Uh, when you put your phone down, when you stop talking and, and, and stop doing what you're doing 
to have a conversation with your wife or your child or a friend that wants to talk to you. That's honor. We have all kinds of pictures of honor in our world. Sadly, we have a lot of pictures of dishonor as well. But what does it look like to honor Jesus Christ? What does it look like for a life to honor and to exalt Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to explore because that's what Paul explores in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is how do you, practically speaking, how do you honor Jesus Christ? And we're going to look at honoring his greatness and then at honoring his design. So let's start with honoring his greatness. Now, when Brandon walked off the stage after reading this passage, he looked at me with kind of big eyes and I looked at him as well and I said, here we go. This should be fun. What do we do at the, the, the beginning, verses two to six? This talk of head coverings. What's it mean? Well, let me just tell you, verse one, first of all, Paul is actually commending the Corinthian church on this. One of the, probably one of the few things he commends the church on. He's actually commending them saying, you're, you're doing what I, I taught you, the, the tradition. So probably what happened here is he got some sort of question of, hey, listen, so we're doing this head covering thing. Do we really need to do that? What's going on here? So Paul's reminding them of what exactly is going on with these head coverings. And, it, and it's, it's, it's strange. And in our modern uh, ears, we, we hear it, we read it and go, what in the world is this all about? So let's begin with verse four says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, first of all, see here that it's, it's speaking of praying or prophesying in a public worship service. Okay, so this is, Paul's addressing what happens in a church worship service like this. When men are praying or prophesying leading up front or when women are praying, prophesying leading from up front. Okay, so this is addressing what happens in public worship. And he says, if a man prays or prophesies or leads from up front with his head covered, he dishonors his head. Well, who is he dishonoring? What's his head? Well, back to verse three. The head of every man is Christ. So what this says is that when a man leads from up front in this first century context in Corinth with his head covered, He's dishonoring Christ. And you say, why? Well, in first century Roman culture, a man, when he walked into a temple to make an offering to a false god, he would pull his hood over his head. That's how he'd make an offering in pagan worship. And so the command here is, is, is created to, to, to set up a sharp distinction between the worship of false gods in a, in a pagan temple and the worship of the true Christ. So Paul says, don't cover your head. Why? Because that would create distraction for people that are gathered, that have come out of maybe false worship in a pagan temple, have come to know Christ, and now a man gets up and puts his hood over his head. It would be confusing. It would create distraction. It would take the emphasis off of Christ and put it onto 
this man and put it onto the worship of false gods, right? So to remove the distraction, to create the distinction so that Christ can be highlighted, that Christ can be worshiped and honored, he says, men, don't cover your heads. Then in verse five, Paul's gonna move on to address women or to wives. And look what he says. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, again, context here. This is leading in public worship. This is a woman who's leading in prayer and prophecy. It says if her head is unco- uncovered, she dishonors her head. Well, who is her head? Back to verse three. The head of a wife is her husband. So a woman who leads in worship with her head uncovered, dishonors her husband. Why? Because in first century Roman culture, married women were expected and required to wear head coverings as a, as a sign of respectability. It was a sign to say, I'm married. And so for a woman to lead in a public worship service without her head covered, who's married, she was basically saying, I'm available. I'm available inviting men to proposition her, to hit on her. I mean, that's what's happening here. And so Paul says, no, women, cover your head. In fact, the the end of verse five continues to accentuate this, since it it is the shame, or it is the same as if her head were shaven. It goes on in verse six, that is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair to shave her head. Why? Well, in first century Roman culture, a lot of cultural context here. First century Roman culture, a woman, if a woman shaved her head, she was identified as a prostitute. In fact, there's, we have history of that happening where a, a prostitute's head was shaved. And so you see what's happening here. If her head was uncovered, she's saying, I'm available. Paul's saying, well, you might as well just shave your head and, and, and make yourself a prostitute to be propositioned, right? Again, the point here is that if her head is uncovered, that's a distraction, in public worship, all focus now is on her and off of Christ. It draws attention away from Christ. All this, all this head covering talk is about putting the honor, the focus, the spotlight on Jesus Christ and having nothing distract from that. Nothing that would draw away from Christ and draw attention to self, whether it's a man that pulls his hood over his head, whether it's a woman who's married that doesn't wear a head covering, is to remove the distractions in public worship so that Christ alone can be exalted, so that he can be seen and worshiped and honored. Eugene Peterson was a well-known pastor for a number of years, and uh, he got to the end of his career, and he was about to preach his last sermon. And it was around Christmas time. And so his son bought him a pair of cowboy boots and said, Dad, I want you to wear these cowboy boots preaching your last sermon. And uh, Eugene Peterson said to his son, son, I I can't do that. Cowboy boots and a robe just doesn't work because Eugene Peterson was in the context where he preached with a robe. And his, son, and his son said, but it would be, I mean, to wear your boots, it would be a touch of celebration. It would mark the end of an era. And, and so when his dad said he wasn't going to do it, his son expressed a ton of disappointment. And his dad saw that disappointment. And he said, okay, I'll wear the cowboy boots. He wore the boots. And 
after the service, he said, you know, my son was right to some extent. Yeah, it marked the end of an era. It was my last sermon. But he said, I was also very right because he said more people in his church were whispering about his cowboy boots than listening to what he had to say. It was a distraction. Took the focus off of Christ and onto a pair of cowboy boots. It'd be no different. If I showed up next Sunday in a three-piece suit to preach, that would be a distraction. If Kevin showed up next Sunday to preach in ripped jeans and flip-flops, that would be a distraction here in this context. If our uh, women that help lead in musical worship, right, were scantily clad, that would be a distraction, right? The issue here is anything that is a distraction that stands before Christ is to be removed. Brandon Branch, who just read scripture, he's one of our pastoral interns. He, he preached a sermon in his seminary class recently at Gordon-Conwell about the, the simplicity of worship and the need to focus on Christ. And he told the story of, of being in, in Kenya and Uganda one time and watching these Christians in a mud hut worship around the word of God in prayer. And he said, there was no audiovisual system. There were no professionally trained speakers. There was no lighting. Uh, there, there was, there was uh, no building with AC and his, and his comment, and he said it really well. He said, if you would find it hard to worship in that setting, then it's possible that you've put the experience of worship in front of the object of worship. You see, there's a ton of distractions that we can talk about in public worship, but one of them can be putting the experience of worship in front of the object of worship, which is Christ. Anything that gets before the object and therefore blurs or takes away or draws away from the object of worship is a distraction. And Paul's saying whether it's in first century Corinth with head coverings or whether it's today in our contextual place, all those are to be removed. Now, let me add one here. I'm going to tread lightly, but I'm going to tread. Many of you, many of everyone in our culture now, you read your Bible from a Bible app on your smartphone. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when you have your phone in worship and you're reading the scripture from it and you're two clicks away from an email about work the next week and the, and the tough week you're gonna have or you're two clicks away from a text that buzzes in even though you've got it on silent, right? The phone can become a distraction. Paul says, remove every possible distraction in public worship that would take away from highlighting, exalting, and honoring Jesus Christ. Whatever that may be, remove it. That's the point here of what he's getting at with the head coverings, right? To, to honor Jesus Christ, we honor his greatness by removing the distractions that can draw attention away from Christ and onto self. So we honor Christ by honoring his greatness 
Second, though, we honor Christ by honoring his design. Honoring his design. So if verses two to six get at distractions in worship and removing those distractions, verses seven to 16 get at why is there a difference between men and women? Why, right? why is the prescription that men don't wear head coverings and that, and that women do? Why is there even a difference between men and women in the context of public worship? That's where 7 to 16 is getting to. Why is there a difference? Why isn't this just the same for men and women? Why is there a distinction? And before we get into the, the distinction and the interdependence, I want to speak to one of the core foundations of worship, that at the core of worshiping is understanding and embracing who you are in Christ, who you are under Christ, who you are under God. Ben Witherington, he says it well. He says, worship is the act of praising and glorifying God for who God is which at the same time entails that human beings recognize who they are as beings under God and in Christ. So what he's basically saying is you can't really worship God until you embrace and understand who you are defined by God, who you are in Christ. And we see this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, this is a notoriously hard verse to understand. But what it's, what it's saying is this. There's a distinction. Women in first century Corinth are to have head coverings, right? It's a sign of authority. It's a distinction. Why? It says because of the angels. Well, what does that mean? Well, Isaiah chapter six, verse two says that the angels in the presence of God use their wings as a covering. In other words, even the angels have a way of showing reverence and awe and honor to God. That they use their wings as a, as a, as a covering, as, a, as an act of, of submission before God to revere him and to honor him. And so what, is, what, what Paul's saying in verse 10 is, every kind of created being, has a way of showing reverence to God and fulfilling their God-given role, whether a man, a woman, an animal, a plant, a tree, angels, all of creation has a role and a way of showing reverence to God. And then now we're going to look at what this means, specifically for gender, for man and woman. But the point is that that everyone has a role. And so the, the message here is to know your role, embrace your role, because you can't worship God if you're rebelling against who he has made you to be as creator. Does that make sense? You can't worship God if you're rebelling against who he has made you to be as creator. That's what verse 16 is getting at when it says, don't be contentious. That just means don't rebel against God in the way that he's made you. We have a number of examples in our world where we embrace this idea that we have a role to play, that we have a role, that not everybody's the same, and, and that we embrace this role. There's a lot of places in our world where we say yes, right? and we don't even question it. 
I'll give you an example since we're in football season. Imagine your team's, your favorite team is playing and you're watching the game and they're marching down the field and uh, they're just, they're getting ready to score. And the quarterback takes the shotgun snap. The offensive guard turns and runs back to the quarterback. And right before he hands the ball off to the running back, the offensive guard grabs the football. And the defensive lineman that was in front of that offensive guard runs in untouched, blasts the offensive guard, fumbles, and the defense recovers. Now, in your living room, would you jump up and down and clap and say, finally, this offensive guard understand how demeaning it is that he's relegated to only be an offensive guard and not a running back. Finally, he's asserting himself in the equal right he has to be a running back. That is so good. Of course you would. In fact, what would, what would cause you to stand up and applaud is if he did his job, the running back got the handoff, and he scored. Right? Our world is, is, is full of examples where there are different roles to play. And that those roles are to be embraced because they are the way God has designed things to be. It's the way he's designed his world to work. And so one of the ways, though, though we generally can embrace this idea, one of the areas where we fail to embrace this as a culture is with gender. And as a culture, we, we, we argue why men and women should be able to play the same sport. We argue why men and women should be able to do the same kind of work. We argue why, um, why human beings, this is most recent, should be able to choose their gender. We, this is, okay, let me just pause here. If you're not a follower of Christ, if maybe this is your first time being in church in a long time, and you go, wow, I walked into a sermon. I think we can all agree on this that our world is so polarized right now. There is so much hatred. There is so much division. And it's polarized over politics. And it's polarized over gender. And what we see and what we hear and the, the, the division and the hatred and the fighting is just not pretty at all. It's kind of like the difference between, have you ever um, gone to see a professional orchestra? Like, a, you know, the Jacksonville Symphony. You go and listen to a professional orchestra and it's just beautiful. You sit back and, and the, the harmony and the way the instruments come together is beautiful. Uh, have you ever listened to a middle school orchestra? A bad middle, middle school orchestra where you're sitting there and going, ah, the clarinet's squeaking. And, ah, you kind of cover your ears like, oh, it's cute. But boy, that, it's just awful sound. Listen, that's the world we have right now. There is awful music coming out. And one of the areas where it comes out is in this area of gender. So the question is, then how are we to approach gender? How are we to relate as men and as women? And what we're going to see here is that, that Paul lays out Christ's beautiful design for men and women. It is absolutely stunning. And you're going to see why. Absolutely beautiful. It is like a beautiful orchestra. The music is beautiful that plays. If we would just embrace it and see the beauty of it. So what is the beauty of it? Well, as you're going to see here, the relation between genders is neither one of domination 
in subservience, nor of interchangeability and sameness. Okay, it's, it's neither dominance and subservience, nor is it interchangeability and sameness. There's a distinctiveness to men and women, and there's an interdependence between men and women. Let's start with a distinctiveness. And we see this in verses seven to nine, also in verses 13 to 15. I'm not gonna spend much time on 13 to 15 with the whole, uh, you know, men don't wear long hair, women wear short hair. I, listen, don't get caught up in that. If you're here this morning and you're a man and you have longer hair and you're a woman, you have shorter hair. It's, it's, not, it's not talking about that. What it's talking about in 13 to 15 in that first century culture is that he's affirming there's a distinction, okay? That's all he's affirming there. There is a distinction between men and women, okay? But we're gonna look at verse seven to explore it. Verse seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this comes straight out of the creation account. God created the man from the dust of the earth. He put him in the garden to work. And he saw that man needed a helper. And so he took a rib out of the man and he made a woman. And that's what we see in verses eight and nine. The man was made, or the woman was made from the man and the woman was made for the man or to, to complement, to fit the man, right? That's what we read in Genesis two. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, to complement. That's what it means that the woman was made for the man. It's a, it's a compliment. Now, on the surface, these verses can read as a misogynist attitude. They, they can come across as demeaning to women and elevating the superiority of men. And what I want to argue here and what I want you to see is that Paul is doing just the opposite. He's doing just the opposite. You see, the issue here that Paul, the scenario he describes is that both men and women are acting independent of God. You see here that the, the, in the scenario, the man wearing the head covering, that's what the women were supposed to do. The women not wearing the head covering, that was what the men were supposed to do. There, there was this, uh, in this scenario, an absolute independence from God and his ways. That was the problem. And both men and women were acting independently. And both were rejecting Christ's beautiful and distinct design. Now, let me speak to the man who might read these two verses and puff up. And puff up with arrogance, puff up with maybe an attitude of superiority. Two truths, and I would speak now not just to that person, but to all men. Two truths that Paul affirms here. Okay? Number one, the first truth this is from the creation account. Why did God create a woman? Because the man needed help. Why did God create the woman? Because the man needed help. He couldn't cut it by himself. He couldn't do it by himself. He didn't have the full skill set to do it by himself. See, God created a woman because the man couldn't 
do it by himself. And in a culture where men are kind of stereotypical, we are self-sufficient and do it all ourselves. That's a lie. Men, you need women. Husbands, you need your wives. All the men, please say amen. amen. Yes. And say it loudly or it's gonna be a rough afternoon for you. Men need women, right? That's what we see in the creation account. See, gender distinction, listen to this. Gender distinction or difference nurtures mutual respect, not domination or manipulation. Gender distinction nurtures mutual respect and gender distinction undermines competitiveness such that we don't say we're gonna compete against each other or show the world how we can do it all by ourselves. No, gender distinction actually undermines that. It nurtures mutual respect. It undermines competitiveness. Second truth for men to hear. Notice what it says here. Both men and women are the glory of another. You see that? Both men and women are the glory of another. Now, Yes, the head of a wife is her husband. And that word head, it means the representative of the family. It means the one who takes leadership in the family. It says that the, the, the head of every wife is her husband. But then notice what it says. The head of every husband is Christ, which means that the man, the husband, men, submit and follow Christ's leadership. And what was Christ's leadership? He said, I came to serve, not to be served. What we're talking about here is not dominating leadership, but servant leadership. That yes, the head of a wife is her husband and the head of the husband is Christ, which means that the husband, the man leads with servant leadership, not dominating leadership, but servant leadership. Honoring Christ, it means honoring his design, namely the distinctiveness between men and women. But the second part of Christ's design, it's not just distinctiveness, but it's interdependence between men and women. Interdependence. Remember, Paul is calling out both men and women on their independence in this passage, right? I just addressed men that might read this and get puffed up with arrogance or puffed up with superiority. It's not what Paul's talking about. Let me address now the women that would respond to this and say, exactly. Exactly. That is why I will not submit to a man. I will not embrace male headship. That's exactly why I won't do it. I'm an independent woman. I can do it by myself. Now, what does Paul say to that? Look at verse 11 to 12. I mean, this is what he's addressing, the scenario, right? Off with the head covering. I'm not putting that on. I'm an independent woman. Verse 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. This, these are, this is a beautiful set of verses because what it speaks to is not independence, 
but interdependence. This great interdependence between men and women, man and woman. Women, I'll just, I'm going to flip the tables here. Women, you need men. You need men. And I say that with great compassion and great empathy to some of you who have been victims of abuse that would say, because of that, I will never, ever submit myself to a man again. And let me just caution you, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sin has perverted and distorted gender relations and this radical independence from God has created abuse and all the sin and perversion there is. But Christ's design for the interdependence of men and women is absolutely beautiful. That's what he has intended, is for there to be this mutual respect and mutual interdependence. And that means in Genesis, when it says he created the woman to be a fit for the man, that word fit, it means complement. It means puzzle piece, right? Imagine if you opened a box, a hundred piece puzzle, and you opened the box and there were a hundred pieces that were the exact same puzzle piece. You'd go, this is what a waste. This puzzle can't fit together. God says to, to women, listen, I have made you to be a beautiful puzzle piece in your marriage. And you and your husband are interdependent, you need each other, and this puzzle piece fits together, right? Again, back to the orchestra. It's, it's, now, now think about an orchestra where the conductor is up there conducting the orchestra, and every person in the orchestra is playing their own tune. Refuse to listen to the conductor follow his lead. And they're all playing, their, it, would, it would sound awful. That's where we're at here with gender and the relationship between men and women and the relationship between gender distinct, distinctiveness of men and women, interdependence of men and women. We honor Christ by honoring his greatness, which means removing every possible distraction, right, that would take the focus off of him. And we honor Christ by honoring his design, his biblical design for gender, for men and women. And I hope you see that the way it's laid out, it's beautiful. It's beautiful as God has designed it. Several years back, uh, Oscar-nominated actress Amy Adams, she was boarding a flight from Detroit to Los Angeles where she was gonna shoot a new movie. And she was in first class. And then next to her in first class was, uh, was uh, Jamel, what's her last name? Hill, Jamel Hill. She's a reporter for ESPN. And they were sitting there, and, and Amy Adams, when she got on the plane, she noticed a, an American soldier back in coach. And she had always wanted to do this, but had never done it. And so she talked to one of the crew members and said, hey, I'd like to change places. I'd like that, um, that American soldier to come up and sit in first class. But I want to do it anonymous. This is not about me. And so arranged it to where she, she moved to the back of the plane, and then the, the crew member went up and said, um, you know, you've been moved up to first class, the soldier goes up to first class. Well, of course, Jamel Hill, you know, ESPN reporter, on her Twitter account says, doo, 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 you know, gets it out there, which by the time they reached Los Angeles then, therefore, all the news crews, right, they see a story. 
They, they, they're there to meet them when they get off the plane and they interview Amy Adams. And she says, this is what she said. I didn't do it for attention for myself. She said, I did it for attention for the troops or for this soldier, right? To honor him, to honor her. Listen, in a world where attention seeking has made it into church worship services, where attention seeking has made it into the gender wars that are just racking our culture, God calls his people to remove all distractions, to remove every last distraction so that Jesus Christ can be exalted, Jesus Christ can be lifted on high, Jesus Christ can be honored and praised and honored for his greatness and honored for his design as people who willingly submit to him and the beauty of what he has designed for his people, for his world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are all convicted of our independence. We all see our independence rear its ugly head in so many ways. We see it individually. We see it as a culture right now. We see this independence from, from you causing so much division and so much polarization and so much hatred. And we certainly see it in, in, in gender roles and the relationship between genders. And yet this morning, we, Father, we affirm, we confess, we bow the knee to your design. Jesus, we bow the knee to your greatness. And we pray that in our local context here at Christ Church East, that every distraction, every possible distraction would be removed in public worship. That Jesus, you and you alone could be lifted on high. And Father, we, we affirm and confess the beauty of what you have designed for men and women. That our relationships between, or the relation between men and women is, is not one of dominance or subservience or interchangeability or sameness. On the other hand, it's, there's a beautiful distinctiveness and there's a beautiful interdependence. Jesus, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, we understand that you submitted yourself to your Father to win our salvation. And so we eat and drink this morning as recipients of amazing grace, as recipients of a salvation that we did nothing to accomplish or to earn that all we have done is brought our sin to the table and we bring it forward now in confession, corporately before we take this meal. We confess our independence. We confess our hatred. We confess our division. We confess the idolatry in our hearts and believe that you have forgiven us and believe that this meal is, is an act of your grace. And so we plead that you would pour out your spirit on us. 
as we eat, and as we drink. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.